Alright guys, so this is SSD, Sustainable Self-Development, a podcast for people who want to get ahead in fitness and in life without driving themselves crazy. So if you want to look up a year from now and think, damn, I came a long way, but you don't want to burn out in the process as you get there, you came to the right place. We'll get into today's episode in just a second, but just want to let you know that we have an awesome community on Facebook in the form of a group which you can join, where we discuss and debate things, drop ideas ideas, debate over which person to interview for the next podcast, and all that good stuff. So go to Facebook, type in sustainable self-development, or you can just check the show notes here and click the link there, and you'll find the sustainable self-development Facebook group, and you can join. Also, not sure where you're listening to this right now, but this podcast is available on a variety of platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbeam, and YouTube. You can find it on all of these platforms if you just type in sustainable self-development because luckily nobody is weird enough to name themselves in such a way except me so look me up on these places and follow the show by subscribing so that you don't miss future episodes and with that let's get into the show so uh, dr barbara oakley welcome to the show well thank you so much for, for having me i'm really happy to be here so um, please, uh, just for the listeners who might not be familiar with your work, if you could just uh, summarize in a couple of sentences who you are and uh, what your work is consisting of these days. I'm happy to share. I, my name is Barb Oakley. I'm a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Michigan. And uh, along with Terence Sinowski, the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute, we teach the world's largest massive open online course, which is called Learning How to Learn. And it's got mm, well over 2 million uh, registered students so far. And I think part of the reason for the popularity of the course is because the, we, the instructors, have walked the walk. Uh, we, uh, for instance, I have my own background is I started out as a, a Russian linguist. I learned Russian in the military. I'm not of Russian heritage, but I sure learned to enjoy the language. And I switched over when I was in my mid-twenties to trying to learn math and science. And since I did become a professor of engineering, it turned out quite successful, despite the fact that I had a terrible start since I was awful at math and science while I was growing up. So, um, so what we teach in the course Learning How to Learn are some of the essence or essential ideas that we are learning from neuroscience as well as cognitive psychology about how one really learns effectively, no matter what you're learning, whether it's language or math and science or something like uh, dance or, or musical instruments or expertise really in any kind of topic. So we have a lot of fun with the course. I also, that's the course is based on a book I wrote called A Mind for Numbers, which is actually a general book on learning. And I, uh, we both have a, a new book coming out in August called Learning How to Learn, and it's, it's uh, geared for children about sort of essential, practical tools for how to learn more effectively. Yeah, I think um, the ability to learn is something that I think will become relevant for people at different stages of their lives. 
I think maybe first in elementary school and high school and then later on, um, for example, I remember in college a lot of people just being punched in the face, uh, myself included actually, when we realized how we just didn't learn how to learn during our earlier school years, perhaps because it was, you know, before that, it was always kind of squeezed out of us by, you know, the rigor of our parents or teachers. And now in college, when we had had a lot more independence, we were fully in control basically of how and when we study. Then came the harsh realization that we had no systems and no strategies to do this. So I'd be wondering that for you, what were some of the early moments of realization when it struck you how important it is to learn things effectively and to master things quickly? And how much of a gap this was in people's skill set? I think it was when I went to the Defense Language Institute, which is the military's top school, or the U.S. military's top school for learning foreign languages. And they have it down pretty much to a science about how you learn a new language, even a somewhat difficult new language like Russian or Chinese or Arabic or um, any of the, the toughies, um, which is not to say that some other languages still are tough, even when they're seemingly somewhat more similar to English. But, um, but I think that um, when I was at the Institute, I enlisted in the Army right out of high school. And so, um, <clears throat> so the thing is, what had happened is I, I enlisted in the Army, went to the language school, began to study uh, Russian, and I began to learn, although they didn't call it this, that it was very important to, to get these patterns, neural patterns, laid so they became very well entrenched in my mind so that I could easily uh, remember what a verb was, uh, so I could translate aperitz, for example, which is to repeat. And I, I, I could come up with that verb instantly. I could uh, conjugate it as I might need to. So I repeat, you repeat, uh, he repeats. They all have different forms of, of saying that verb. But if you're remembering, if you really practice with those patterns, they become quite natural for you. And you can recollect them and mix and match them and even be creative in your speaking of Russian. And as I learned Russian, I was, I was at the same time learning this about learning. So I was learning metacognitive learning skills, but I, I didn't realize that. And when I was age 26 and I decided to go back and start with remedial high school math, the only way I knew to learn that seemed to be effective was using this same sort of technique where I'd, I'd practice and get a concept down and I'd practice with it in several in different contexts so I could grab it flexibly whenever I needed it. And um, so you might think in a, let's say that you're learning uh, uh, some of the probability distributions. Um, and so let's say you're learning the geometric distribution versus the binomial distribution versus the negative binomial distribution. Well, you can learn each one, but you also need to learn which, what time you choose each one. So that's a little bit like um, 
conjugating a verb, well, what time do you use first person, and what time do you use third person, and so forth. So at any rate, I, I began to, to learn math and science and, and get these patterns down. And I think these kinds of patterns, well, as, as the world's leading expert on the development of expertise, who is a fellow named Anders Ericsson, has found, developing a library of what he calls mental representations, in other words, these neural patterns, is the key to becoming an expert in any topic, whether it's becoming an airline pilot or uh, a, a, um, a linguist or a, a dance, uh, yeah, a ballerina. It's, it's, all, it's all the development of these mental patterns. Right. Uh, so perhaps this is something that is important to clarify right up front, that whatever you're trying to learn, whether it's a highly technical skill or you're, you're trying to master something completely different, such as, I don't know, learning languages, the method or the process that has to take place for that learning to actually stick is ultimately the same, right? Yes, that is exactly correct. Of course, what you're learning could be quite different. It could be um, the development of, of uh, coding techniques and your ability to, to code um, more quickly and um, in some sense more creatively, or it could be um, that you're learning Taekwondo. But the important thing is to get a bit of day-by-day -day practice. Uh, and so why it's important to do day-by-day -day practice is that every night, well, when you're learning something during the day, these little neural connections, they're kind of like buds, and they begin to just barely pop out. Uh, but when you go to sleep at night, that's when those neural connections really kind of sprout out and, and begin to grow. In fact, that's part of why sleep is so important. That's when the, surprisingly, that's when the real learning takes place because that's when those patterns are forming. But you can only do, create so many connections during one night of sleep. So if you, let's say you cram for 10 hours during a day. Well, you can only grow so many connections that night, and let's say you don't do it again the next day or the next. Well, those patterns will begin to slip away, and very quickly, too. However, if you learn, let's say you learn for an hour or even several hours, and then you go to sleep, and you learn again the next day, and then go to sleep, and then repeat that for a week, you will develop this very well-founded neural structure of learning that, that simply can't be grown when you're just cramming um, in one day. Yeah, so practice is, is definitely a key component here, but let's talk about something that is kind of an inevitable part of the learning process on the whole, which is getting stuck. And of course, everybody will know this who is listening to this podcast that we will get stuck at certain points of our learning and endeavors, no matter what we are trying to learn. But I guess especially in fields such as math, where you need to see through complex problems, right? Not just memorizing things. Um, so is this getting stuckness uh, something that is just an inevitable consequence of the learning process that is unavoidable? Um, so yeah, let's, let's just start there. Well, uh, this brings up two important aspects of learning. 
One of them uh, is, I think, really quite interesting. Uh, it's a very recent study done by people at Duolingo, which is the language learning app. And they studied who are the, the Duolingo users who are most successful in learning new languages. And what they found was something very interesting. They found it's people who use the app right before they go to sleep and do it consistently every day. Those were the ones who were the most successful. So this goes right along with what I had mentioned before as far as uh, uh, sleep being a very important part of learning well. And if you study it, I mean, you can study during the day, and that's great, but if you take a final little preview peek before you go to sleep, or, or just a review peek um, at the material before you go to sleep, it's almost like it, it prompts your subconscious to say, Hey, run your little mental mouse along those particular pathways. And that indeed is what happens when you go to sleep. Um, your sleep, uh, oddly enough, certain thoughts will be practiced while you're sleeping. And that's what strengthens those neural networks regarding whatever that is that you're thinking about. So, uh, so at any rate, it, when you're stuck in learning, a very good approach is to keep learning during the day, but review it at night, right before you go to sleep. But a second thing, and this is related, and, and it's actually what's going on in a lot of learning, is it, it turns out that we seem to have two fundamentally different modes of interacting mentally with the world. The first is what I'll, I call focused mode. Um, psychologists call it uh, activating the task positive networks. And this mode is you, you're focusing. So you're activating a certain small area of your brain. I mean, of course, there's many other areas that are always working away, but there's a specific uh, sort of network, uh, tightly knit network that you're using, say, to focus on um, memorizing a vocabulary word uh, in Spanish or, or trying to solve a, a problem in math. But the, so focusing, even if you're focusing on a person who's speaking to you, that's all focused mode. But this other mode, you are also thinking, so thoughts will kind of fly through your mind, but it's much less directed. You're not like specifically turning your attention to something. It's more like you're standing in the shower and a thought about this comes by and maybe something about that comes by. I don't know about you, but for me, the shower is like the be all and end all of creativity. And often that's because we don't have anything that we're focusing on so much on the outside. And we're in these sort of neural resting states. Uh, there are many of them. The, the most prominent neural resting state that we know of is the default mode network. So learning often involves first focusing on material and then kind of backing off, not thinking about it at all. You have no attention on that material. And when you have no attention on whatever that is, that's what opens up this diffuse mode that it can either sort of grapple with something that you're trying to figure out in the background, or it can simply consolidate it. So it, it sort of makes better sense of it and places it in, um, 
in a way that you can call it more easily up into working memory. So again, learning involves going back and forth between first you're focusing, maybe you get really stuck, you know, so you're, you're, you just can't figure it out. That's perfectly normal. That's because you're in the focus mode. So you need to back off, either focus on something different or even better, go for a walk, go take a shower, ride a bus. Um, any of these kinds of activities help activate the diffuse mode, the neural resting states. And these are like your handy little helpers that you're not conscious of, but work away in the background to help you in understanding whatever you're stuck with. I think one of the biggest challenges we have in learning today, and that's why I, uh, Terry and I worked on this book, uh, Learning How to Learn, which is for kids, is that kids and, and adults are not taught the fact that learning is, is really... Um, it's very common not to understand something the first time you tackle it. And that's okay. You just do the best you can until you maybe feel pretty frustrated. And then back away. Let these uh, this other mode, the, def the diffuse mode, kind of work away in the background. And that's why when you come back, oh, sometimes things can make much better sense after you've taken a little break from them. So, so learning is a, is a wonderful thing, but um, surprisingly... Well, maybe it's not surprising. We're just not taught about it, but I think we're not taught about it because a lot of information about how we learn has really only come out um, in the last decade or so. And that's, that's uh, too short a time for it to be uh, spread out into uh, the world. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I think it's so great that uh, people like you put out content and work on this topic and spread the message. Uh, that a lot of the things that we tend to think of as inherent character traits are actually, to a good degree, learnable skills, such as the ability to focus. So let's talk about this diffuse and focus mode. Um, so you mentioned how for you uh, showering is a good time to invoke a good amount of creative thoughts. I actually noticed the same thing too. For me, it's uh, cleaning the dishes. <laughs> so yeah, cleaning the dishes and going for walks without listening to anything. Uh, that's when I tend to get a lot of great ideas. But so if I'm interpreting what your message here is, it's not by accident. So these sorts of activities are actually really suited to trigger certain types of brain activities that will help us to think more creatively. That's, that's exactly right. So what can happen is that when you're, well, the funny thing for me is normally I am like the last person who likes to clean. And, but, uh, but what I find is when I'm procrastinating, I, I'm, I'm actually not a bad cleaner because um, I'll do almost anything to avoid whatever I'm procrastinating about. But I, I do want to mention that, that sometimes it can be a little demoralizing when you are trying to figure something out and somebody ostensibly much smarter than you, figures it out so much more quickly. And I'm sure you recall in class um, that sometimes a teacher would ask a question and there'd be a person with their hand in the air already having the answer, and you didn't even really understand what the question was even about. And I think it's important when you're looking, if, if you're a slower thinker, uh, to realize what your 
great attributes are. There are actually many positive benefits to being a slow thinker. Um, for example, well, let's just compare. Um, some people have brains like race cars. They can get there really fast. And others have brains that are more like hikers. <laughs> they can get there, but it's much, much slower. But a hiker can reach out and feel the leaves on the trees. They can, they can hear the birds. They can see the little rabbit trails. It's a completely different experience than, a, than the race car brain. And in some ways, it's much richer and deeper. So I, I think it's, it's, it's another very important thing to realize is that let's say that you're one of those kind of people that you just can't focus very well. It's, it's like, oh, shiny. You get distracted and whatever you were thinking about falls out of your head. Well, research has shown that people like this who, who have poor focusing abilities, who don't have a very good working memory, are many times very creative. And the reason for that is that with your poor working memory, things are always falling out. But something else pops in when something falls out. And that's where the creativity comes from. But more than that, if you have a poor working memory, that means you can't hold very much in mind at once. So you're always looking at these people with these steel trap working memories who they can hold all parts of an equation in their mind and solve everything at once. And it's, it's hard not to be a little envious of, of those kinds of abilities. But you have a, a genuine asset with the poor working memory. And that is that you can, because you can only hold a limited amount of material in your mind at once, you can come up with ways to simplify these ideas. So you can still hold quite a bit, but you have to, you have to create these neural connections. It takes time to do. But once you've done that, you can see things in a simpler sometimes much more elegant way than the person with a really strong working memory, the seemingly smarter person. So, so there's great hope for us with poor working memories who are slower thinkers. My, my hero in science is a fellow named Santiago Ramon y Cajal, and he, he won the Nobel Prize and is considered the father of modern neuroscience. And Ramon y Cajal said something that I think is very important. He said, I'm no genius. And he, he really wasn't. Um, because, he, as he said, I've worked with many geniuses, and I don't think as quickly and as well as they did in some ways. But he said, I was successful because I was, number one, persistent. And number two, I was flexible when the data told me I was wrong. Many of the geniuses who Ramon y Cajal worked with they were super intelligent, and they were so smart that when they had a hypothesis and it turned out it was wrong, well, they weren't used to be wrong because, well, they were super smart, and so clearly they couldn't be wrong, and so they, were, they just used their intelligence to come up with new ways to justify how somehow that data was showing that that was incorrect, but that wasn't really true. They, they were actually correct in the first place. So in other words, the geniuses sometimes had trouble because they were inflexible when they were wrong. They jumped to conclusions and then 
that was it. They, they just couldn't change. So if you're a slower thinker who, uh, who's persistent, you can actually sometimes outdo great geniuses. So don't sell yourself short. Yeah, um, it, it's funny you mentioned this because I am definitely, um, I, I would say I'm more of a creative type and I am definitely a slow, slow thinker. Um, and uh, is, is there a way, I mean, it's, it's very relieving on the one hand what you're saying. On the other hand, um, is there a way to improve upon this if you're a slow thinker to make yourself a faster thinker? So like one funny thing that comes to mind, which I'm sure a lot of listeners can attest to, uh, is when someone in a debate, for example, says something completely outrageous to you and you're just startled, like you don't even know what to say. And then at night or the next day, the perfect answer comes <laughs> to you. And uh, and I, I always just looked up, not looked up to, but was just always amazed by these people who can always come up with the perfect response on the spot. And I always wanted to be one of these people because many times I cause myself some, some sleepless nights with these these kinds of moments in debates and, and such things. So is there a way to approve upon this or is it just kind of a pick your battles type of deal where where if you're a slow, if you're a slow thinker, then you need to pick the areas in which that actually pays a dividend to you to be a slow thinker? That's, that's a great question. Um, my, my own thoughts are it's... I, I, I have the same problem. I, I can't come up with these brilliant, witty comebacks. I'm just not a brilliant, witty comeback person. But uh, maybe it's self-justification. Sometimes there are brilliant, witty comeback people who are really brilliant, I mean, at all levels. But sometimes people who are verbally brilliant are also kind of glib when you really look at what they're saying. I mean, they're witty and they're funny and they are sharp with the comebacks, but they're actually not that creative and they're not very deep. Um, so maybe I'm just saying that as a way to, to um, make myself feel better, but sometimes I have seen that. I wish I could make myself be wittier. Um, some, occasionally I'll surprise myself and I'm like so happy, I'm gleeful. Uh, but uh, many times I, I too regret the fact that, oh, I should have said this or I should have said that. And I think it's just one of the trade-offs we have for the fact that, well, we're slower thinkers and that gives us other abilities. And so uh, just remember those other abilities that we do have that are really good. Yeah, I, th I think that it's very important to to kind of find a silver lining in and kind of find the strength strength aspect in things that you perceive to be your weaknesses and and i think this definitely can be one of those areas uh, i i want to go back just a second to what we talked about earlier on this focus mode versus non-focus mode or diffuse mode and um i i'm wondering have you by any chance read uh cal newport's book called the uh, deep work oh i love cal newport's book that that is an excellent one um it, deep work is i think one of my one of my top uh, favorite books, and really, what he's what he's talking about is developing the ability to focus, while also appreciating the fact that downtime, having diffuse time, is is also very important. And so, I I think he is amongst the the productivity. Uh, experts, or at least that book, is, is one of the best productivity books that, that I've read. 
Yeah, and uh, and and I would one. I was wondering. Uh, I mean, I've heard you earlier as you were talking about how when you're taking a break from a task, then it's probably best not to go on uh, on something like Twitter or do some social media uh, writing stuff or things of that nature. And uh, I guess if I recall your rationale behind this uh, correctly, it was more along the lines of uh, not trying... So for example, let's say you're writing something and then you go on Twitter, you're still writing. So you're not technically taking a break from the task that you were working on earlier. And Cal Newport's rationale... Uh, for the kind of making the same type of argument that you shouldn't do that. But his rationale was more along the lines of this uh, attention residue that can develop when uh, switching your attention to something completely unrelated uh, that has an element of like active distraction that can uh, just spark these other ideas that can then remain in your mind as these lingering distractions later on. Uh, have you found something similar in your own practice on based on your own experience? Do you think that this has merit? I think Cal has a very good point there. One, one thing, and I don't think there's enough research to show, to give us good, solid guidance, but there is some evidence that, for example, let's say that you're in a coffee shop and you're trying to work out something that's a little bit difficult but you got to be a, a bit creative to understand. You're not just sitting there memorizing a poem, for example. Uh, although memorizing a poem is pretty difficult in and of itself. Uh, but memorizing a poem, you may or, or an equation or anything, you really want to be totally focused as much as possible while you're doing that. But if you're trying to figure out um, something that's a little bit conceptually difficult for you, Sometimes it can be good to, to go back and forth between focus mode and, and diffuse mode. So there's some evidence that if you're in a coffee shop, for example, that it makes it a little easier for you to figure things out that are somewhat difficult because you are sometimes brought out of your focus into a kind of a neural resting state very temporarily by the, the clinking and clanking of the coffee, pot, the coffee uh, cup sounds as you're in the coffee shop. In fact, there are coffee shop apps that are out there, um, but there is some research that shows that studying in a coffee shop can sometimes be more effective in helping you to figure out tough things than studying in a completely silent uh, environment. So, so I think the verdict, like I really like, Cal Newport's approach of don't let yourself get pulled aside into um, other endeavors. Uh, for example, don't be sitting in your uh, dorm room and then your roommate comes in and you get into another conversation and then you're really pulled out. But a little bit of brief pulling out um, just by virtue of a clank of a coffee shop or just something very momentary can sometimes be helpful when you're trying to grapple with something difficult. And I think about that's about the only thing I didn't catch uh, that he noted in his uh, work, but I, I think it's a relatively minor point because um, it's the major point is the one he's making, and that is try to, by all means, really put your focus on what you're working on and don't let yourself um, get drawn off into something 
just as you're really getting into your work uh, that, that, that will make it so it's quite difficult for you to get back into what you're doing. Oh, and by quite difficult, I mean it can take a couple minutes to really get your mind wrapped back around um, what you were working on. So I think, by and large, Cal Newport's approach is, is fantastic. Yeah, and, um, and and not to turn into this uh, as a discussion on his work, but I'm, I'm just very curious, as you who are who is an expert on this topic, uh, I would be curious as to what your experience is on this. Is um, There is an argument, and Cal is not the only person who has made this argument, that even in your free time, it might be worth um, kind of scheduling in uh, activities that are highly distracting in nature. For example, using social media or um, switching from one internet type of distraction to the other at a you know just at a snap of a finger not not having any sort of structure there um a lot of people do make the argument that this sort of trains your brain to be hypersensitive and uh, susceptive to all kinds of distractions when they arise and then when you're trying to focus on your work it can be very difficult to all of a sudden switch your brain into a state where you are not giving into these distractions so it might be worth to schedule and structure your day in a manner that uh, that minimizes or at least restricts uh, these sort of mm, hyper distracting activities somewhat uh, have you found this to be useful in your experience or do you are, are you more of the mindset that when you're relaxing you should be really relaxing and you should not be worrying about these types of things that's a very good question i think that when you have a um, a lot of people don't have the flexibility to structure their day uh, very easily you can start your day out with great intentions but it quickly goes awry so uh, I think that Newport's uh, suggestions about trying to map out specific times for certain tasks, uh, including time for breaks, um, is, is a pretty, pretty decent approach. Um, the one thing is, I, I do think that you can train your brain uh, to, to become more focused. And the Pomodoro technique is a great way to do that. Uh, Pomodoro technique, all you have to do is turn off all distractions. So nothing on your cell phone popping up, uh, nothing on your computer that's popping up, no sounds, no, you try to minimize all distractions. Although if you're the mother of a two-year-old, that can be pretty tough to do. Anyway, so, uh, so you minimize all distractions, set a timer, any timer for 25 minutes, Focus as intently as you can for those 25 minutes, and then reward yourself. So listen to a song um, that's your favorite song. Uh, play a computer game that's your favorite computer game. You can do that for 5-10 minutes, or it depends on what you've got going on in the day. But um, doing the Pomodoro, uh, it does, it's a valuable tool because the most important part is that reward at the end. 25 minutes is a good time frame, but let's say that you get into the flow and you just keep going for 50 minutes or an hour and a half, whatever you do. It is absolutely critical. Whenever you finish, you must reward yourself. And what that does is a bit like Pavlov's dog. Um, dogs. He, Pavlov, Pavlov would ring a bell and then the dogs knew at that time that they were going to get some food 
was going to be a little bit yet, but they were going to get the food. Oh, they'd get so excited. They'd be salivating and just kind of running around with excitement. And so in some sense, the Pomodoro is somewhat similar. What it's doing is you set that timer and you're working away, but pretty soon your brain begins to figure out that, hey, can I get to the end of this? I get to have a reward. And you it helps you to begin the action enjoying the actual process of, of focusing more. So, so the Pomodoro is great because it can help you to learn to focus more intently and to enjoy that process even more. But I think a very important point of the Pomodoro too is we're human. We are not necessarily built to focus, 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 focus all the time. We need that break afterwards because Learning continues during the break. That's when you're using the diffuse mode to consolidate what you've just been learning. So people fool themselves a lot of time into thinking, oh, the only time I'm actually learning is when I'm focusing. But if they are taking uh, some sporadic breaks, they're actually learning during that time as well. And so, um, so I think uh, going back and forth again between focused and diffuse using the Pomodoro to teach yourself to be able to really focus intently while you are focusing uh, is a great thing. And I should add that when you are focusing during the Pomodoro, it is extremely usual, it's normal human behavior to find your mind drifting off of whatever you're focusing on. So whenever that happens, whether it's five times or 30 times during that, that Pomodoro, Bring your, your attention back and keep working away until the 25 minutes is up. I suggest uh, what I, I do is if you're thinking you're going to work longer than 25 minutes, I suggest just setting the timer for 25 minutes and uh, it, it just don't have a ding at the end of it. So if you do keep working past that, that's okay. But just reward yourself whenever you do find yourself coming up for air. Uh, that's, a, that's uh, I think, a good way to, to get yourself motivated. I, I do find that even when I just sit down and I set, the, if, like, if I'm messing around and I find that I'm just not really focusing and getting something done, I'll set the timer, and, and all of a sudden, my attention picks up and I get more excited. Uh, I don't know what it is, but a Pomodoro is a, is a great, great mental tool for helping you to kind of enjoy and get yourself working on on whatever you're working on. And I think part of its magic is because it, you don't have to do it all day long or for hours, just 25 minutes, and, and the, any brain is capable of doing that. Right, excellent. So um, if I want to uh, su summarize basically the, the most important takeaways up until now, it seems like uh, have some sort of a, an end point to your your studying or your process of learning something new reward yourself at the end uh, if possible review your learn material at night and maybe in the morning to make use of the refreshing and kind of rejuvenating effect of sleep on your brain and um what what did i miss and 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 schedule a focused and non-focused times during your learning process is that a generally a good uh, good summary of what we talked about up until now I think that's a really good summary. I couldn't have done it better myself. 
<laughs> Excellent. Just out of curiosity, do you have uh, something in your life at the moment that you're uh, actively learning and where you're utilizing these type of uh, types of approaches? Yes, I am working on Spanish and a little bit of Portuguese. And so it's a bit tough sometimes because yesterday, for example, I was coming back from San Francisco to Detroit and it was a very, very hectic day. So I got my Portuguese in, but I didn't get a little Spanish in, and I'm feeling very guilty about it. Um, but uh, I can say, oh, coisinha da pumiquinha do pai, in Portuguese, which probably is not going to help me get a cup of coffee in the morning, but at least I can say it. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, I'm in a similar process. I'm also learning a language, so I'm excited to utilize some of the stuff that we talked about here in, in that front. Um well, uh, Dr. Oakley, I think uh, we went over a lot of uh, golden nuggets here. And thank you so much for dropping all these uh, great insights. Uh, just uh, before we say goodbye, just please let people know uh, where they can find your work and find out more about all you're doing. Oh, well, uh, uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. And, uh, and for the listeners, all you need to do is go to my website, barbaraoakley.com. And there's lots of information about my books and um, the online courses that I've done. And I look forward to seeing you there. Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Oakley, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a comment and subscribe if you watch this on YouTube. If you listen to this on iTunes, please leave a rating to help this stuff grow. SoundCloud and Podbeam, you can just follow me to be notified on future episodes. And to be a contributing member of this podcast, join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group where you can drop ideas about future podcasts. I very often ask my listeners for tips and advice on who to get on next. So if you're interested in getting into discussions like that, be sure to join the Facebook group. And if you don't want to go through the searching process, just click one of those links in the show notes slash video description. It is all there. All right. Thanks for hanging around up until now and see you next time.